0: This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis, Center. the Davis Center The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University.
1: What really fascinates me about the region is that it's a kind of it's a kind of node in this network that connects the the ancient worlds of Europe, the Eurasian steppes, and the Near East. There was this shift in kind of Kind of conservative influence to to a kind of innovative influence. And yeah. So that my question myself was, OK, what is causing this mm-hmm. shift? And So to look at that, I looked at where iron artifacts were appearing.
0: So today I have the pleasure of speaking with Nat Urb-Satullo, who is an archaeologist who specializes in the archaeology of Southwest Asia, including the Near East and the Southern Caucasus. His most recent work has been in the Republic of Georgia. Hi, Nat.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. We're excited to talk to you. I do want to start by saying that what little I know about archaeology, I know from Indiana Jones. So (laughs) I don't know if that's a very realistic um, interpretation of your daily work in the field. So I want to start with sort of a, a broad question about sort of what your research goals are, what you're trying to accomplish with your work, and maybe what sort of a day in the life of an archaeologist really looks like.
1: Uh, well, I do have a sort of Indiana Jones-style hat. I, I don't currently own a whip, um, we'll, we'll see about it in the future. Um, so basically, the sort of high-level question that my research deals with is how people choose certain technologies over others, why people choose those technologies over others, and the kind of placing the kind of technical dimensions of how innovation happens, how experimentation and and innovation happens into the broader social context and the social forces affecting the people um, doing these technologies? So do we see um, evidence that technologies kind of build on one another? Um, or do we see a kind of revolutionary approach where, where a, tech- a new technology succeeds because it is completely different than this previous paradigm?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what, what I study is this, the way I apply this idea of looking at how technologies change and how people choose certain technologies by looking at uh, specifically metal production in the South Caucasus um, and looking at the places where people are producing metal. Um, so in this, in, in some cases, I look at the sites where people take the raw ore that they mine from the ground, and they put it in a furnace and um, undertake, a, carry out a practice, a process known as smelting, and that's the process of taking the ore and making raw, kind of unformed metal. Um, in some other cases, and my more recent work um, that I've, I've just been kind of getting going in the last couple of years, is looking at um, where they take raw metal and uh, make it into uh, artifacts and those are typically um, at settlement sites. Um, The smelting sites that I've looked at for the most part so far have been isolated from these settlement sites. So I'm looking at the kind of precise context where people are making these materials. And because uh, unlike uh, your nice finished objects. the the waste products of production nobody really cares about nobody cared about three thousand years ago so they tend to leave them mm-hmm. where they were uh, abandoned and this and looking at the specific places and specific contexts where people were making these things tells us a lot about a lot more about um, how things. We're done than, than simply looking at the artifacts, the finished artifacts in isolation.
0: So on a day a normal day of you working in the field, you get out of bed, you get up and you go and look for what? what are you, what are you actually putting your hands on every day?
1: Um, so a lot of what I look at is what's called uh, metallurgical slag. It's slag. the kind of it's the, the waste product mm-hmm. of metal production that nobody really cares about. And by looking at that um, by finding that in the field, Uh, And taking it back to the laboratory, looking at the minerals, the chemistry, you can tell a lot about the um, choices that people made in carrying out the production, what ores they selected, um, in some cases what temperatures they were able to achieve, and more generally, by finding this production residue, you know that since they're not moving it around in the landscape, you know that that's where they, they the carried
0: The production out was out. happening, right.
1: So a sort of ordinary day, I, I carry out both uh, excavation and what's called archaeological survey, which is sort of finding sites and mapping them mm-hmm. with GPSs uh, and kind of creating a picture a map of the sites within the landscape. When I'm doing survey usually in um, western Georgia where I've done my dissertation research we were relying um, very heavily on old Soviet period field notebooks because um, previous Georgian archaeologists had gone out and found a number of these sites and they would kind of write is almost like a treasure map they'd say this site is um, 200 yards or well, probably meters um, east of Levon's farm. Uh, but maybe Levon doesn't live there because this was anymore because this was 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, so we kind of go back and we talk to people. And one of the reasons we rely so heavily on this kind of technique is because the landscape of Western Georgia is extremely densely vegetated. It gets quite a lot of rain. This is, um, it's basically subtropical <laughs> in, in climate. So um, more traditional methods of archaeological survey, which might involve um, you know, walking, you know, you know uh, a number of surveyors walking in a kind of a straight line across the landscape, looking for, mm-hmm. for pottery or other kinds of mm-hmm. things, wouldn't really work because it's just you oftentimes can't see the ground. It's, it's buried underneath. underneath,
0: right, yeah. right.
1: When I'm doing excavation, um, as I've started an excavation project on a um, fortified site in eastern Georgia, Uh, Now that site I found uh, myself a couple of years ago not by asking people in this case but by looking at Google Earth and I noticed a very clear um, fortification wall that was visible uh, in the satellite imagery. Uh, So that's a different kind of survey and and, uh, generally speaking satellite imagery is is increasingly used for finding useful archaeological first sites. Points,
0: right. So that leads me to my next question, which is, what led you to Georgia in the first place? What is it about, mm. um, about Georgia and its archaeology that was mm. intriguing to you? Um, what is unique to the archaeological record, record of Georgia that mm. um, has spurred your research interests? Um, well,
1: I knew I, I was really interested in studying ancient technologies and and, and specifically metal production. And, and Georgia is a is a country that's extremely rich in in ancient metal deposits. Um, the oldest known gold mine in the world is located in Georgia. But what really fascinates me about the region besides just having the, the kind of metal production is that it's a kind of It's a kind of node in this network, this sort of broader interaction sphere that connects the the ancient worlds of Europe, the Eurasian steppes, and the Near East. So you see a a lot of kind of evidence of um, contact between these different regions. Uh, But at the same time, the Caucasus Caucasus kind of has this its own unique character as well. These kind of these highly kind of bisected uh, mountainous regions um, created a lot of sort of unique places for unique kind of cultural traits to develop. And so I, I, the example I always use in this case is, a, is an artifact that was found, uh, that w- that's in the Georgian National Museum that I always um, like to talk about when in, in sort of describing this perspective. This is a um, it's a silver belt that was found excavated in a grave dating to the uh, the classical period. Um, it has a uh, a number of kind of incised figural designs on it. Um, it has a um, person reclining on a couch um, in the same way of uh, in the style of the Greek symposium. So that's the kind of Western influence. And, and the the dress of this figure is, is looks more kind of Western. Um, there are also uh, griffins and these fantastical winged beasts um, that. Uh, has a more kind of Eastern Persian, Near Eastern kind of influence, but the belt itself is a kind of hammered, very um, broad but thin hammered sheet of silver. Those kinds of belts are very characteristic of the Caucasus
0: mm-hmm. itself.
1: So that kind of object to me is sort of emblematic of of the, the the South Caucasus as a whole.
0: How does that? reflect in the work that you do because you do talk about new ideas and innovation coming in to change the, the way that people were, do, were working uh, mm-hmm. as they process these metals um, and this whole question of innovation, sort of slow innovation, based on what is coming in from other places and people maybe making choices or feeling influenced by that versus Mm -hmm. there being a revolutionary change where someone had a great idea, well, why don't we try this? Mm -hmm. And that then becomes their own, again, an own stamp, a a revolutionary change. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Um, So one of the the really unique things about uh, the the history of, of metal production in the Caucasus um, and I specifically studied the the transition between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Um, this is when um, the the um, iron objects start to appear, um, oftentimes alongside their bronze counterparts. Right. It's not a, not, a, um, not
0: an either or. Mm-hmm. It's That's sort of an addition right. too.
1: Um, and and I should specify that the. Uh, Bronze is often made from an alloy of copper and tin. Um, So what I'm looking at when I'm talking about the raw metal is mostly um, copper smelting Mm -hmm. sites in in Western Georgia. And those sites are are organized in a really um, distinctive fashion that contrasts with the kind of other um, copper production industries in um, the Near East. Um, These sites are highly dispersed. There are uh, dozens of them. We've mapped um, possibly up to 70 or 80 um, sites. In this region, there, there are dozens of them scattered across the whole landscape. Probably um, there, and, and considering that, that the uh, vegetation makes it very difficult to find, in terms of there are probably um, thousands of them across yeah. the whole kind of region. Um, um, in the Near East, say, um, southern, this, what's called the southern Levant, so Israel and uh, Jordan, um, modern day countries, in those areas, you see at the same time. You see a smaller number of sites, but those sites are massive. They're heavily fortified. They've got some really uh, clearly laid out square fortresses. Um, the sites themselves, I did some sort of back of the envelope cal- calculation in terms of quantity of, mid- of production waste, um, and it seems that they're about three orders of magnitude larger than what you're seeing than what I'm in, seeing in Georgia. Georgia. Mm-hmm. But if you make some assumptions and, and make some estimations about the number of sites and, and kind of estimates of the, the total aggregate productive output of Georgia, you're starting to see something that's much more comparable. Mm-hmm. But this is organized in a completely different way. Um, there's very little evidence for any kind of top-down organization. This kind of system of production had a, an interesting kind of bifurcated effect on the introduction of iron into the region. So on the one hand, this kind of established system, it's highly diffuse, doesn't seem to have any kind of authoritative control mm-hmm. over the system as a whole. On the one hand, that kind of inhibited the, the, the appeal of iron because copper and uh, perhaps tin, the two metals used to make bronze, are both widely available. And there, they seem to be invested in this kind of system of production. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's production debris Across the region, um, so on the, on the one hand, that kind of inhibited the, mm-hmm. the introduction of iron. And on the other hand, when you do start to see iron artifacts, they appear in large quantities. They appear mimicking very closely the bronze forms. Oftentimes, in the same kinds of graves, you'll get a bronze form and an iron form, iron form of the same object, and they're mm-hmm. uh, pretty much pairs of every mm-hmm. of every artifact. So this suggests to me that the pyrotechnological metallurgical skills that that craftspeople in in Western Georgia developed helped to stimulate once the kind of iron had become a sort of socially acceptable alternative or or Mm -hmm. addition to Mm -hmm. the kind of repertoire it these kind of pyrotechnological skills allowed it to spread quite rapidly Mm -hmm. so that kind of on the one hand shows that that these, this previous technological system, times inhibited, mm-hmm. and at times stimulated. It's an opportunity cost, stimulated. right, <laughs> in, in, yeah.
0: in theory, to abandon what you know in mm-hmm. favor of something that is less known. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about sort of the lived experience. You talk about people potentially going up into the mountains and bringing things back to a um, seaside where they might be living. What else... Um, from your research has helped shed light on sort of the lived experience of the people who were living in and around, working in these mines, or at least benefiting from what the result of these mines was, the, the work that came out of these, these mines. What can, you, what can you say about the people who lived in this time, in this region?
1: Uh, my new research is trying to address this question of how does this kind of metallurgical system Interface with the rest of society, mm-hmm. and really pushing the idea of okay, what is the nature of kind of social relationship between craftspeople and chiefs or political authorities mm-hmm. of some kind? Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the fascinating things about the Caucasus is that there's because it's so mountainous and kind of crisscrossed mm-hmm. with all these mountain chains, you often get kind of different lines of social development, mm-hmm. and and there's a, a long-standing kind of thousands of year-long kind of. Uh, contrast between what's going on in Western Georgia, which is much more tied into the Black Sea world, and what's going on in Eastern Georgia, which is much more tied to Azerbaijan, Armenia, Mm -hmm. um, Northeastern Turkey, Mm -hmm. and and perhaps Iran. Um, So my new project is looking at a settlement site with evidence of metal production in Eastern Georgia. Mm -hmm. And that's a particularly good place Mm -hmm. to look at this question of is there some kind of control by elites over any part of the production right. um, chain? And, and one of the sort of fascinating things about this site is that it identified it because there was a fortification wall of some kind or this some kind Was what you saw of, on Google Maps. Yes, yeah. yes, okay. that's absolutely yeah. <laughs> right. Um, this encircling wall on the top of the hill. So that's why I went to the site. And when mm-hmm. I, I got to the site, I found evidence of metal production, um, likely both some kind of processing and production of copper or, or bronze, and also iron. So, and, and so this, this site uh, has evidence of a, a fortress, or something there's lots of ceramics, animal bones, mm-hmm. so um, I'm working with a zoo archaeologist um, who can study the, the bones to see what people were eating, mm-hmm. um, and in some cases how they were preparing their right. food, uh, by looking at kind of which parts of the bones are burned. Mm-hmm with some very rare exceptions um, and archaeologists get very excited about those exceptions. (laughs) Uh, Settlement sites, they don't have a lot of complete artifacts Uh, and in order to get uh, complete pots, complete metal weapons and other things like that, you have to excavate graves.
0: And what you do see in this region that there's um, practices where people are burying their loved ones with ceremonial objects, with a lot of things Mm -hmm. to represent in some way, that this person was loved and cared for and of importance.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that th- there was this shift in kind of kind of conservative influence to to uh, of uh, earlier bronze and copper production to a kind of innovative influence. And mm-hmm. so, the, my question myself was, okay, what is causing this mm-hmm. shift? Uh, and so, to look at that, I looked at where iron artifacts were appearing. Uh, they, they appear very prominently in these large. Um, collective graves that are found in western Georgia. Uh, chronology of those graves is a little um, tricky, but generally sometime after the turn of the 1st millennium B.C., so so early 1st um, millennium B.C., so just after 1,000 B.C. Mm-hmm. You start to see these collective graves, and, and many of them have large quantities of iron in them. And these collective graves represent a kind of shift from the traditional ritual practices of the earlier periods specifically the the kind of 1500 to 1000 BC where we don't have as many graves and the kind of deposition of metal frequently happens in hordes
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so These collective graves are often found in clusters, so several together, Mm -hmm. and I think they represent a kind of burials for preferred lineages, so Mm -hmm. a kind of ossuary. You bring your dead ancestors and and inter them in Mm -hmm. in these, uh, these collective graves, and so this, to me, it represents a kind of shift, right? Hordes are scattered all across the landscape, and so by virtue of the fact that it's hard to get people to come to an event that's happening in very different places, I think that the Collective graves, where they're coming back again and again and again over a period of years, are places where you get increasingly large numbers of people coming in. Mm-hmm. And this is a place where wearing a nice iron sword or dressing in, in um, you know, these various g- uh, jet and amber and um, sometimes glass-paste beads um, would have been a rare, very kind of uh, marked decision. Mm-hmm. It's a place where people would see and be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, So in that context, where suddenly you have these lineages that are investing a lot of wealth in burial displays, uh, this is the kind of environment where someone's decision to choose an iron sword or an iron axe over a bronze sword or a brown axe would have been highly noted. Mm -hmm. And suddenly in this sort of environment where certain lineages are competing for attention, that's the kind of social shift that precipitated this rapid, what I think is a rapid adoption.
0: Okay, so you talk about the idea of innovation in um, the development of uh, these ores and smelting these ores, but then you talk about this social paradox where people are making changes to their ritual behavior. Where do you think this is coming from? This this change that you that you that you noted with the way that they are memorializing their dead, I mean, it's it's symptomatic of people coming together more. Is that the cause or the effect, I guess, is my question. Well, that's a good
1: question. And this goes to the sort of problem of kind of identifying Mm -hmm. the the moment where somebody made a decision. And one of the things that you, what I I realized when I was looking into kind of, looking into kind of innovation processes is that it's a a quite, uh, a process that seemed, can at times seem stochastic. So it, it, small kind of, Seemingly inconsequential decisions can have very large effects. Mm-hmm. And so instead of searching for those, the, the like micro decisions, or the, uh, the uh, famous economist called it sort of micro motives, mm-hmm. um, you look at the kind of macro behavior and the kind of social context that allowed that kind of micro decision to have, have an, an oversized effect. effect. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my, my line of
0: thinking. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Matt. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.